Here's a sneak peek of what we have today. I was vice president of a national dental support organization that had practices in multiple provinces. Uh, what do you think are the, the, the pros and cons of starting your own practice in this day and age? So what kinds of questions should new grads be asked? As soon as you scale across 50 locations, all of your problems become magnified. There's a lot to know about in dentistry. We should be having discussions about business, entrepreneurship, and innovation. So let's start right here, right now. This is the business of drilling. Anyways, so Christian Jerry, how are you doing? I'm good, man. All is good. It's a good Saturday today. Yeah, doing well. I have you guys been finding that the weeks have been like flying by? So fast. Since since we're not at school and I, I don't have any work structure. Every day is is the same day. Every day is a Monday to me. So it, it's a little weird with COVID, but Anyways, welcome back to the business of drilling. I'm your co-host Vlad. I'm joined by Christian and Jury, both second year dental students. We're really excited to have this conversation with you today. If you haven't already, go check out Debbie Academy, um, debbieacademy.ca on Instagram. It's Debbie Learn. That's D-E-B-I dot L-E-A-R-N. We have a really interesting guest today. This guy is, I mean, his story is phenomenal. Um, I'm really excited to introduce him to you and uh, have him kind of tell you about his journey, but this is a pretty prominent consultant and we're very, very grateful to have him here today. Sina Amiri, um, great guy. So Sina, welcome. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Thank you for, uh, for hosting me. I'm doing fantastic. So Sina, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself so everyone can kind of get on the same page of what you do and how you can help us in dentistry? Sure. So I spent 14 years in the healthcare industry, pretty much most of my career. And I started working uh, back in 2005 in the healthcare IT sector, um, providing solutions to hospitals and health systems, both in U.S. and Canada, as well as independent diagnostic imaging centers um, and primary care physicians. And so was in that field for uh, up until really 2012, from 2006 to 2012, I had the opportunity to kind of witness what was happening with with primary care in Canada. And we shifted away from having physicians, you know, practice on a fee-for-service basis, right, to practicing in family health teams and family health groups. And the government of Ontario, as well as many other provinces, realized that the model of having physicians practice solo was not economical because of the cost structure. So they started incentivizing primary care physicians to do more on chronic disease management, to do more with regards to managing their clinic in a more cost-effective way. And when I witnessed that and I kind of stumbled across, you know, the downfield, right, throughout that experience in healthcare, it was really evident to me back in 2012 that we were going to see some level of consolidation within dentistry. And part of that was because of the rising costs of running a dental clinic. And the other one was simply the fact that we saw the dentist to population ratio declining, right? And um, most dentists today have realized that they need to pay much more attention to uh, where they open their clinic and you know, how they manage their operating expenses. So from 2012, up until now, I've been exclusively working with dental practices. Um, I'm currently the vice president of DSOs and strategic markets at a company by the name of Swingo. We're an online healthcare marketplace. We also provide procurement and inventory management software to solo and group dentistry. 
And then prior to that, prior to Swingo, I was vice president of a national dental support organization that had practices in multiple provinces. And our smallest clinic was four operatories. Our largest one was 18 operatories. And one of the most challenging aspects of managing those clinics during the pandemic, obviously, was staffing and making sure that you have the ability to be able to recall your patients and patients that are canceling appointments. So I've kind of managed clinics through the pandemic, and it was one of the most challenging, I would say, uh, parts of my career because of the fact that, you know, up until then, I'd never really managed a business in a health crisis before. Right on, right on. So, Sina, how did you, you, you got involved in dentistry pretty early, right? What specifically about dentistry drew you in apart from uh, medicine? Yeah. So when I was working with hospitals and health systems, you know, we generally work with a lot of CEOs, CIOs, and I found that the process for solution adoption. So for example, with regards to technology adoption, um, it was a long journey, right? Because uh, it, when you're selling to a hospital or healthcare system, you're essentially dealing with in the Canon, in the Canadian market, you're dealing with a government uh, related entity. And in the U S there's a lot of obviously, you know, private hospitals, right? So, but that process, given the number of employees, the number of um, decision makers, it's a very extensive process. And the CEO of a hospital, right, uh, managing that budget, um, generally, you know, if it's a private hospital, it's not their own capital per se, right? It's, it's, it's a number of different sources of capital that is helping that organization sustain itself. What I really loved about dentistry when I started getting exposed to dental practice management was that here you have essentially a small business, right? And some small business owners or dentists decide to be entrepreneurs. But at the end of the day, you really have the decision maker. It's one person, right? Generally speaking, because the practice is owned by one individual in most cases, and I found that as long as you delivered a solution that could have a defined return on investment, dentists were all over it, meaning they could measure the benefit for their own business. And because it was their own capital on the line, right, they were much more willing to try new technologies. And in fact, you know, it took a long time for the Canadian healthcare market, for example, to ensure that physicians are managing your healthcare data in an electronic medical record, right? The dental industry, despite being late on many technologies, was, I would say, fairly early when it came to adopting, say, practice management software to the extent of actually managing your patient information using digital technologies, right? So I was involved with that market many years ago. And when I saw the adoption rate of technology and dentistry, it really excited me. And in the end, you know, I... Uh, like that one-on-one -on -one relationship with that individual entrepreneur uh, way more than I did dealing with a huge healthcare system where there's a lot of, you know, red tape and politics. Nice. And then, so you said you had quite a bit of experience on the business side of healthcare as well, right? Um, and you've, you've been consulting in dentistry for quite a while now as well. Can you just briefly touch on that and maybe talk about your experience in that as well? Sure. So I have spent uh, about five years um, on the real estate part of down practice management. And so I had the privilege back in 2012 um, to join a company that was the preeminent uh, healthcare real estate consulting firm for dentists. And we had 
thousands of clients all across U.S. and Canada. So I frequently fly to the U.S. and lecture on the topic of commercial real estate leasing. And what was interesting was, you know, when you look at the profit and loss statement of a general clinic, right, you look at the operating costs, you know, the real estate aspect of running a clinic, that's generally comprising of about 7 to 8% minimum, right, of your collections. And in some cases, it's as high as 12%. And when you're running a clinic, you know, you get to control a few things. You don't get to control everything. One of the things you do control is where you set up practice or where you buy a clinic and also how you negotiate or structure your lease agreement. And one of the things that I uh, noticed was that a lot of dentists early on in their career, they hadn't done enough due diligence, right, on the location as they could have. And locations, frankly, what's a really attractive, you know, location today may not be an attractive location 15 years from now, right? You've seen manufacturing go through a recession. You know, you, you will see commercial real estate, right, uh, change. You're already seeing the downtown urban center markets um, changing as far as rental rates. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of dentists are stuck in, you know, long-term leases that they negotiated six, seven years ago. And so, they don't necessarily have the luxury of relocating that easily. And I really liked helping them deal with this issue of how to manage the real estate asset, right, of their clinic, because it's such a critical component of the sale. When you decide to transition, you know, you're selling your goodwill, you're selling your equipment, but you're also transferring the ability for another dentist to be able to practice in your location. And if that is not done properly, right, you really don't have viable asset because if a dentist had to buy your clinic but move it, it's kind of like buying a house and finding out that you can't live there. You have to actually pick up that mobile home and move it somewhere else. You know, that's going to cost you a lot of money. So for me, that was really interesting being exposed to that. And um, through that, I also got to experience, you know, some of the other issues that dentists had when it came to transitioning their clinic. I saw a lot of associates buying into clinics without really a solid strategy, right, as far as the transition plan. And I think the general feeling with associates is that I want to keep the selling doctor on for too long. And I am of the view that you have to kind of have a balance because if that selling dentist leaves after three, four, five months, there's a lot of patient goodwill that's been built up over decades, right? And so that can be easily eroded um, if you don't have a proper communication plan in place with those patients. Hey, that's a cool perspective to come from too. So you're someone that advises essentially, um, you know, practicing dentists, new grads, and even dental support organizations, right? Like you've had quite a bit of experience in all that. So you're definitely the go-to guy to kind of talk about any sort of, you know, big, specific macroeconomics or types of ownership driving factors or even interests in dental support organizations, right? And that's why we're really excited to kind of have you here and discuss this kind of stuff. And that being said, can you touch on macroeconomics of practice ownership? So that that's a, a big term. Can you explain what macroeconomic drivers are and which ones specifically relate to dentistry? Sure. So when I talk about macroeconomics, everybody has to understand that you know, your practice does not run in a vacuum, right? So what's happening with interest rates, what's happening with employment rates are going to affect how well you can run your clinic. Now, Fred Joyle, the founder of 1-800-Dentist, you know, he has said, you have to create your own economy. And I agree with him. So you don't let necessarily macroeconomic factors dictate, right, 
your success, but the reality is that your practice will be affected by it. You just have to figure out how to pivot. So back in 2008, we had a financial crisis, right? That financial crisis did not result in a you know, real estate crisis in Canada. Um, we, we didn't, frankly, feel the impact that the U.S. market did with regards to the recession to the same extent. Um, but now we had this pandemic. And about 11 months in, you know, we're still in lockdown, right? And I think the future is going to be, you know, up until maybe April, we're going to see continued lockdowns. And yes, the vaccine is being rolled out, but I believe that what's going to occur is you're going to need booster shots. And so you'll see a lot of sensitivity around, do I want to get back into the office, right? On the part of both employees um, in the general industry, not just dentistry, as well as, as well as patients, right? So what it's going to come down to is that we've seen the federal government basically do quantitative easing. You know, they essentially increase the money supply in order to support the general public and businesses. You know, about 21% of all the money that exists today was printed in the last year, right? And what that's going to do is it's going to essentially result in assets being inflated in value because the as a currency declines in value and there's less confidence in a currency because of the amount of money floating around the economy, you're going to see wealthy individuals gravitate towards hard assets. That's real estate. We've already seen real estate prices increase substantially, and I don't think it'll subside. I also believe that's going to drive up practice values. And the reason for that is because, you know, if you look at, a, let's say, 50 plus year old dentist, right, who has a successful practice, generally speaking, that dentist would put their money into a portfolio, an investment portfolio, right, that would be allocated towards bonds and stocks. And with a zero rate, interest environment, you're not going to see the same return on bonds, right? In fact, most people are stepping away from investing in bonds. So if you look at the average practice owners got one clinic, are they more likely or less likely to want to own a second clinic if their investment portfolio isn't returning 7%? Obviously, the stock market's been on a tear, but I do think that there's going to be a reallocation of capital, right? And that reallocation of capital is going to reward real estate as an asset, it's going to reward dental practices as an asset because there's been so many other sectors that have been so hard hit, including hospitality, that they're no longer a viable investment opportunity for many of these wealthy uh, baby boomers. That includes also dentists. So that's going to drive up practice values. And then with regards to the market for practice sales, it used to be that you can get out of dental school and you could practice for two, three years and you would have enough inventory on the market whereby if you bid on a clinic, right, you may lose on the first one or the second one, but eventually you'd be able to buy a clinic. I've talked to dentists that have not been able to acquire a clinic for more than two years, meaning it's become so competitive that they have decided not to overpay for an asset which means that they're coming by clinic after clinic where either they're getting their bids rejected because it's just a highly competitive, right, open house, or they're opting not to pay $1.4 million for a clinic they think is worth 900000 And so I would say that I would 
think most associates are going to gravitate towards building practices from scratch, not because of choice, but because really they don't have the luxury of waiting for five, six years, right, to find that ideal, ideal mm-hmm. clinic. And, you know, the brokers may tell you differently, and I certainly respect their view and their experience on the market. But I do think that associates are, uh, at least this generation of associates, are really smart in the sense that they, they know what an asset is worth, and they're going to reevaluate whether the ownership opportunity makes sense. There's also a huge generational divide, right, between how the you know baby boomers ran their clinics versus what associates want today, uh, which is more to do with technology and uh, making sure that you know there is alignment between them and the employees in these offices. Absolutely. So, so you think more people are going to gravitate towards? or at least more new grads are going to gravitate towards starting their own practices rather than acquiring them. Uh, what do you think are the, the, the pros and cons of starting your own practice in this day and age? What, what's the downside of starting your own practice as opposed to buying it off somebody? So, so the biggest downside, and I think it's not really looking at it from a perspective of what are the pros and cons, more so about what are your strengths and weaknesses and then aligning your strengths with the right model. So, if you're going to start a clinic from scratch, you're going to need to be very good at two things, I would say. It's the real estate site selection and uh, just managing you know, where you're going to open that office. That whole process may take you 18 months, depending on how competitive the real estate market is. And then you're going to have to be excellent at marketing. And the reason I say that is because you have to go basically from zero to about 1,700, 1,800 patients, right? to be able to break even on that investment. And so you can hire people to do the real estate site selection and the marketing, but the most successful startups that I've seen, the dentist is almost like his or her own brand and they take ownership of the marketing, right? They don't leave it purely to an agency. You know, they're there in the community, they're partaking in events, they're getting their name out there. And if that's you, if you don't have an issue with publicity and you don't have an issue with public speaking, in fact, if public speaking is your strength, I would highly recommend you consider you know, starting a practice because the biggest skill set you need when you start a clinic, besides selecting the right location, in my opinion, is promotion, right? How else are people going to find out about you? And your communication skills is what's going to convince a patient that comes in to come back to the clinic because they recognize that you're confident in what you do and you're able to tell your story in a very compelling way. If you opt to acquire a practice, you're buying cash flow, right? So you have to be somebody who is willing to be flexible because you're going to inherit the legacy of another dentist. You're going to inherit the employees of that dentist as well. And if you're somebody who's a micromanager or likes things done his or her way, you're going to have a hard time managing those employees should really be leading them. Right. But you don't get to pick who's on your team when you're acquiring a clinic. Now you can get rid of the staff if you want to, but I would say that if your goal is to get rid of, you know, more than one or two employees, when you're buying a practice, you're probably better off looking into starting a clinic because a lot of the goodwill that I've seen be built over years between practices and patients has to do with the dentists, the hygienists, right, and the administrator. 
And I've seen practices lose 20% of their patient because an office manager administrator didn't get along with the associate that came in and bought the practice and resigned or they were fired, right? Um, so, you know, patients are not stupid. They kind of see what's going on in the clinic. Um, they can feel the energy when they walk in. So you have to be very careful with regards to which employees you inherit, make sure they have employment agreements in place. I've also seen, you know, dentists sell practices without employment agreements where the associate coming in, they realize, you know, Sally working at the front desk, she's been there for 17 years and she's not performing to my expectations. I went to my employment lawyer, my employer said, if you have to let her go, you're going to owe her severance, right? You're going to owe her the maximum under the Employment Standards Act because she does not have an employment agreement. So you have to be careful of the liabilities. Um, you know, if you're somebody who's an introvert, you uh, generally uh, have issues with, you know, self-promotion and marketing, you may look at acquiring a practice as the way to go because, you know, you're inheriting something with, with cash flow. And then the other benefit, obviously, is, you know, if you're time horizon is short. So I deal with a lot of foreign trained dentists that come to Canada that um, are in their 40s or even 50s. And for them, they don't have 25 years, right, in order to uh, own a clinic. So if their time horizon is shorter, I generally recommend to them to acquire a clinic. And the reason for that is because they don't have the three years, right, to get the practice from zero to 1,800 patients. And so the return on investment horizon for them is a lot shorter, and it may make sense for them to acquire. Many of them come to Canada with capital, right, from other countries. And so they're not uh, as going to, they're not going to be as indebted, I would say, versus an associate graduating today, $180,000 or more in debt, they may not be so comfortable buying a clinic at 1.2 million or 800,000, right? Now, Absolutely. obviously it's going to cost you, you know, just as much to build a clinic, but I would say you're more likely to overpay for an asset if you purchase it than if you build it yourself, because you get to control a lot more elements through that process. Absolutely. Yeah. And especially, I mean, that, that, I mean, I'm sure is, you know, multiplied exponentially with the location that you're at too, right? They go, it all ties in back to the location that you've been talking about. Um, you know, just from browsing the internet and like browsing things like, like ROI group or whatever, like the practice sales groups, right. You notice, you know, out West, you know, practices are a bit cheaper. I mean, in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, right? But you look at Alberta or BC or even Ontario, Toronto, right? You see these hyperinflated practice prices where, you know, it could be double or, uh, you know, like 1.5 times the production for the previous year, right? Which, from what I understand, is not the normal trend. That's a new thing happening, right? So, yeah, so it's important to understand the way practices are valued today, right? It's generally based on a multiple of EBITDA. So EBITDA being earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So it's not a multiple of revenue, right, uh, or production. It's a multiple of the, uh, the EBITDA. And, you know, the trading values right now hover around anywhere from 4 to 6%. Uh, but you are seeing you're seeing a general trend upwards, and and part of the reason for that is because, you know, 25 years ago we didn't have large corporate groups looking to acquire uh, and partner with dentists, and uh, those buyers are much more sophisticated, uh, and frankly, they employ full-time employees whose sole job is to go out to the marketplace and find practices that are for sale, and do due diligence on those clinics. So as an associate coming out of dental school, 
you're no longer just competing with other associates. You're also competing with, you know, these larger organizations, in addition to the investor dentist and the foreign trained dentist that has left the country for more stability, come to Canada and they need to park their money somewhere, right? And they just happen to have a dental degree, which makes it a lot easier for them to get into the practices and investment than say some other opportunities. For sure, yeah. Now that that's that's actually a really good point, and it's not the first time I've heard uh, of people kind of talking about having to compete with DSOs. I kind of want to get your opinion on this, though. So, a topic that I've come across is there's practice owners that kind of extend their goodwill past their patient base and want you know, to have the next practice owner, not be a corporation or some, some big uh, entity or whatever. They specifically seek out, you know, buyers that, you know, would pay less, but they know that they're going to treat the practice like it's their own baby. Do, do you, is that still common or is it getting more and more harder to kind of find those types of sellers? So there's definitely a group out there that is going to prefer, right. The person coming into their clinic to take over the, uh, the charts and the, schedule and everything else is somebody they can relate to. I don't, I don't think that's going to go away with or without DSOs, meaning I don't think a, a dentist would necessarily sell their practice to any associate, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, they've built up their reputation in the community and they don't want to see that reputation go down the drain. Um, with regards to the DSOs, what's interesting is that there's a lot of um, quote unquote dental support organizations that were started by a dentist and that dentist decided I'm going to, own more than one location um, because I'm good at doing one. Why not replicate this across other regions, right? And so they're not necessarily, you know, the image that you have in your head with regards to Wall Street or Bay Street. In fact, uh, in Canada, if you look at the largest dental support organizations, you'll realize that uh, all of them were founded by a dentist, right? Now, what happens is when you get into about four locations and $2 million worth of debt, when you go to the bank on that fifth location or one or another million, the banks are not, you know, risk takers, you know, meaning they're not looking to take the same risk as a private investor or, you know, a hedge fund does in the market, right? So what happens is that dentist basically realizes they're tapped out from the perspective of debt financing. And now they need to provide, they need to basically figure out how to obtain uh, capital from other sources. And the natural next step is for them to look at things like, you know, mezzanine finance or look at private equity. And the reason why, you know, private equity is attracted to this space is because, A, the barrier to entry is high. So meaning if you have an established uh, group of practices, you know, it's not easy for anybody to compete with those practices because the barrier to entry is so high and the cash flows are very predictable, right? And usually what happens is the private equity firm says, you know, if I have 30 million, $50 million here, I will deploy that within your business, right? Dr. Smith. And uh, in exchange, I'm expecting, you know, you're going to re generate a return on that capital. No different by the way than how BMO or, CIBC or any of these banks yeah. expects a return, which is in this case, interest on their capital. So, so these dentists, you know, they have this vision of being able to replicate what they do well in one location across multiple locations. The problem is that in a sole practice, 
If you have issues in a solo practice, it's very easy for those to go unnoticed because you're practicing in one location with four or six operatories and your issues are your issues. Nobody else knows about it. As soon as you scale across 50 locations, all of your problems become magnified. <laughs> and because those problems become magnified, there's way more scrutiny on DSOs than there is the average solo clinic. Because I would suggest to you that if you were to walk into a thousand solo practices today, you may walk out with a completely different opinion about dentistry based on what you've seen, right? Yeah. We're not treating those entities with the same scrutiny as we are DSOs. And it just so happens that, like I said, because you're scaling this enterprise, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. I think anytime you scale a business really fast, you're going to find out that there's problems that haven't been solved. They're going to only get bigger as that happens. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, the dental support organizations, which are essentially entities that manage the non-clinical assets of the business, right. And partner with a dentist manages the clinical have realized that they have to take care of the associates, the patients and the staff to make sure that this business thrives, right? Because otherwise nobody wants to put in, you know, $10 million into an entity only to have $8 million be returned to them. And there is alignment from that perspective. And I think that selling dentists have to realize that I just have to pick the right buyer and not all DSOs are created equally, no different than not all buyers who are independent practice owners, right? Or associates are going to be the same. In terms of ownership then, right? Like that, that's a big discussion, right? So you mentioned, you know, starting with four practice, going to 50 practice, but for someone in dental school right now, or, you know, a new associate that, you know, has been practicing for a couple of years that is now looking to become an owner, right? Can you just touch on what options are out there? What types of practical ownerships are a thing now? Because from my understanding, it's, it's very much changing from, you know, you just going out and buying an office and settling down. Like now you have partnerships or outright ownerships or DSO partnerships, right? Can you touch on that? Sure. So there's some group practices that allow you to um, join them as an associate and they'll basically give you the option of buying in. That could be buying into one location or it could be buying into a region, right? And when I say buying in, you know, you'd have to go to the bank, right? Or bring your own capital to the table. You're not getting a shares in a clinic for nothing. Um, so, so there are entrepreneur dentists that do that. Um, it's still a fairly new model in Canadian dentistry in the sense that, you know, you don't see it right across the board. Um, So with regards to options, you can, again, build a practice from scratch. You can buy an existing practice. You can partner with somebody, maybe out of dental school, you decide you and your classmate are going to start a clinic together. The most important thing I suggest to dentists is that before you even think about which of these models is right for me, you want to understand what your vision is for your lifestyle, right? For the next 10, 20, 30 years and really define that. Like when people say to me, I want to own five clinics some point in my career, my first question to them is why? Um, like, what are you what are you going to get out of it, right? I know plenty of entrepreneur dentists that have gone to 20 plus locations but have been divorced in the process. So in the end, you have to really define like, what's going to make you happy, right? And what are you what are you aiming for? There are some dentists that don't like the clinical and love the business aspect of owning a practice. And so they get into multi-practice ownership because it's their way of getting away from the chair. Then there, there's other dentists that love the clinical, but then they finally buy that first practice and they realize, I hate dealing with managing employees. Yeah. I just want 
I just want to do the dentistry, right? And, and frankly, you have to be very honest with yourself and say, you know, am I the type of person that can inspire other people? If I'm not the type of person that can inspire other people, maybe ownership is not something that is going to be good for me because I may be stressed out every single day coming into work, right? I know dentists that walk into a clinic that don't say hello to their staff in the morning anymore. Um, and that's basically because they're burnt out, right? And they're like, I, I, every time I come into this office, every week there's a different drama going on. So for those, I've seen some of those dentists opt for associateship, even as late as their 70s and 80s. Like one of the oldest doctors I ever worked with was a 71-year-old associate uh, making like $400,000 a year as an associate, right? Because as long as you're good with your, with your hands, the reality is 40% of collections, right? What, what the top line is, if you can produce more, and collect 40%. In this case, he had an accelerator, meaning the clinic he worked for gave him 45% after a certain production amount. But you know, he's got a Corvette, he's got all these nice cars, he's going on vacation all the time. Um, you know, he doesn't have the stress of owning anything besides you know his personal mm -hmm. assets. So he's kind of one of those individuals that is enjoying it. And as long as his health holds up, he's gonna continue doing that. And then he used to own a clinic, right? So what happened was he sold that clinic to uh, a group and he just negotiated for himself a long-term associate agreement that allowed him to continue practicing in the same location with his own patients. And the patients don't even know that this practice was really sold, right? They, they think, you know, he's still there yeah. uh, because he's still there. The practice is the same. And it is, frankly. And one of the studies, and what's interesting is, you know, there's been a lot of people that said the DSO model won't work long-term. Um, there hasn't been a lot of studies, but the one study that was conducted showed that the average patient coming into clinic doesn't actually care who owns the clinic. What they care about is how they're treated, right? So they can be treated really well uh, if the practice is owned by a large group or they can be treated really terribly. It just comes down to that one-on-one -on -one relationship and what they feel they're getting out of it. Absolutely, yeah. Interesting. Again, coming back to the new grad, and talking about uh, being, a, uh, being an associate, uh, whether buying a practice or building a practice or, or joining into a partnership or buying into a partnership or joining a DSO, what do you think is, is, is a DSO benefit, uh, beneficial for a new grad so that they can kind of focus on their clinical skills and then, and then maybe even transition out of a DSO uh, later in their career? So I uh, previously ran a DSO, and from my experience, we um, had associates that wanted to stay around for as long as possible because they felt they liked the predictability with regards to their schedule. They liked the fact that the clinic really depended on them showing up, meaning this was not a practice where there was, you know, a principal dentist who was acting as the owner of everything and making the decisions. And it was his way or the highway or her way or the highway. So they were basically feeling like this is as close as I can get ownership without actually taking the risk. Uh, at the same time, I've had associates that have worked for a DSO where they decided after working for a DSO affiliated clinic that they were going to take their knowledge and they're going to build a practice, right? Uh, from, from, from scratch. And, you know, the DSO sometimes doesn't really mind that because at the end of the day, you know, as long as you're not going across the street, right, um, you may end up starting a practice that's super successful and they may come back to you, right, 10, 20 years from now and look to partner with you. So 
So I've seen, I've seen both. And my recommendation to associates is that until you experience the different models, you're not going to necessarily know which one is right for you. So my recommendation is you should at some point early on in your career, get exposed to a DSO affiliated practice. You should sit down with somebody from one of these DSOs and understand what they're looking for and how they run their clinics. At the same time, you know, if your goal is to own a clinic, you may want to also talk about that, right? With regards to like, is there an opportunity for me to have shares within your, within your practice? Um, what's the process for that look like? Uh, and then in addition to that, you know, you want to be exposed to the private independent practice owner as well. So, you know, is there a possibility for you to go in to a clinic that's been running independently of a DSO for many years and kind of understand how they differ with regards to their operating model? The one difference with, you know, DSO affiliated practices is that there's a greater degree of standardization. And frankly, if I were to, for example, get into practice ownership today, multi-practice ownership, I would argue that there is no better business model to learn from than the DSO for the simple reason that on a scale, mass scale, they've shown how they can run multiple clinics and still keep the doors open, right? In fact, during the pandemic, um, talent gravitated towards clinics that had PPE and the DSO affiliated clinics were more likely to have personal protective equipment in, in stock because of their buying power. So to me, you want to get experience in terms of how did you procurement? You want to get experience from a perspective of how did they recruitment, right? And, and also know like where did the DSO practices, where did they operate? Because you necessarily want to be across the street from them if you decide to open your own practice, right? And, and, and compete with $100,000 a year in marketing spend. I, I've heard multiple times now that, you know, having the conversation with a DSO, like if you sign your associateship contract or whatever, most of the time they're very open to actually negotiating some sort of partnership, right? Because they, they want to have good talent, right? That, that, that's a big issue for DSOs and correct me if I'm wrong, right? They, they have quite a high turnover rate, um, at least in the States. I don't know how it's here in Canada, Right. But can you speak on that? Is are they, are they pretty much willing to partner with, you know, good clinicians? Uh, I would assume. Yes. So, so what you have to realize is that you as a graduate, right, you have to demonstrate why you're an asset to any practice owner if you're planning to associate. And imagine going to a 60 year old dentist and saying, I want shares in your clinic. Right, and your production per hour is you know three hundred dollars, um, and you don't have anything that's different on your resume, right, than the next candidate. Like, why would that independent practice owner want to make you a partner? The DSO is no different. Um, so, you know, the one thing that does make them different is that because of the fact that they are in the business of partnering with other clinics, they're always going to have a need to higher associates, right? And, and certainly have those conversations, but realize that, you know, early on, you kind of have to prove yourself, right? And you have to prove your value. And one way to do that is maybe discuss 
you know, the length of the associateship and what will happen after year one, assuming you hit certain targets. Um, and then maybe they're interested because there are some groups that decide to open practices from scratch. So maybe they need somebody to be that entrepreneur that goes out there and, you know, goes into a new location and builds that practice up. So that is certainly a possibility, but just be realistic with regards to the fact that the owners today, they have options, right? And if your expectation is you're going to be a partner, why would they want to make you a partner over somebody else? So really define your value proposition. For sure. Yeah. That I think that that goes even beyond just, you know, trying to establish a partnership, right? I mean, if you're seeing your numbers and you're not capable of, you know, producing, you know, enough kind of, uh, I don't know, dental work and production costs or whatever to, um, you know, support your own clinic, why would you even consider starting your own clinic, right? So that that's something that you really have to, I guess, self-evaluate, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then going back to your question, so what is the advantage of working at a DSO when you graduate? The one thing I've seen, which is clear to me across different DSOs, is that the amount of dollars being invested in associate education. So I'm talking about, you know, continuing education courses that are free or subsidized. Like there is no better model, right? For getting free training than the DSO model because these organizations, and you've seen the news releases, right? They're investing, you know, millions of dollars, right? Into dental schools. And they're investing millions of dollars into building their own institutes, right? to be able to get you from $300 per hour to $600 per hour, because if you do that, everybody wins, right? Obviously you have to do that ethically. So hence why, you know, it's a dentist teaching another dentist how to do those procedures better. But from a perspective of continuing education mobility, I've seen, you know, associates work for a DS affiliate practices in Ontario and then go to BC or another province, right? And, and still, through that DSO, be able to land that next associateship. Um, so there is that ability for them uh, as well. And, you know, the flexibility of being able to pick which practice you work in, although you're working for the same, you know, DSO, they do have multiple practices. So you may decide, and I've worked with associates that have said, I want to not associate for one clinic. I would prefer to, you know, try two or three of them to see which one I like. I've, so, so kind of touching on that topic, um, a lot of new, newly graduated dentists think that it's most beneficial to go to a practice where they'll be under under the uh, the supervision of the principal dentist. They'll learn from the principal dentist uh, certain procedures, how to interact with patients, um, how to run the business. And you kind of touched on this. I was I was going to ask, do you kind of get the same guidance in a DSO because you're not working? Um, because you're kind of working independently. You're not really focusing on the business. You're not, you're not focusing on the non-clinical aspect of dentistry as an associate in a DSO, but you kind of talked about how they'll provide you with continuing education and they want to build you up because that's beneficial for them. So uh, this is a two-part question. One, what's the point of investing into a dentist if you know they're going to leave in a year? And two, can you learn more of the business aspect of, of dentistry while you're working in a DSO, or are you kind of uh, in the shadows in that aspect? So that's an excellent, uh, excellent question, Christian. So to answer that, the first part of it, which is, you know, 
do you get the same business experience, right? Working for a DS affiliated practice? And the answer is it depends. So I've uh, hired, as an example, a dental student to be an operations intern at a DSO I ran. And the reason I did that was because he was interested in getting experience and exposure to the business of dentistry. And I didn't have an issue with that. So he was sitting in all of the boardroom meetings. He was part of the conversations with regards to like, how do we improve this organization? So don't assume that just because you are associating in one clinic, you can't go to a DSO and say to them, I have an interest in learning about the business of dentistry. Teach me. You would be surprised how many ESOs are willing to connect you with somebody within their organization to be that mentor from a business perspective, right? Uh, and then the other question you had, which was, you know, if you're a DSO, like, why would you invest $100,000 in continuing education, right? If you know the associate's going to leave in a year. Uh, with regards to the turnover question, you know, the average tenure of associates, irrespective, by the way, of whether it's a DSO affiliated practice or not, is about two to three years, meaning you probably have friends that have decided to work for a dentist who's completely independent, right? They work there for two years, they relocate cities, or they decide to go and open up their own practice. So it is high turnover, I think, regardless of what type of model it is. But at the end of the day, you know, the way you're going to get experience on a business side of dentistry, whether you work for an independent practice or a DSO affiliated one, is by asking for that opportunity, right? And if the DSO is not willing to give you that opportunity and you're looking to get that business experience, then move on to a clinic that will give you that experience. And then there are owners, by the way, that yes, they have a you know practice that's doing million dollars plus in production, but they're not necessarily maybe the best person to learn from when it comes to practice management uh, because all habits die hard, right? And you're getting exposed to one type of management or leadership style. Um, and so you just have to be very careful with regards to is the practice I'm going to be associating for or is the owner the type of person I want to replicate, right, in terms of the way they manage a business and, and, the, and the clinic. Because I've seen some associates learn bad habits from certain dentist owners. I've also seen some of them learn bad habits from DSOs, right? <laughs> so it highly depends on who the owner is. And then the way that associates, um, the, the DSOs, get the return on the investment you're making in education is generally they're saying, you know, if you extend your contract by a year, we will, for example, do these things from a CE standpoint, right? So it's not just, you know, a month to month contract where they're just pouring money into continuing education. A lot of the continuing education investment is predicated uh, on you staying there for a period of time. And then sometimes if you leave after a certain period, let's say you only associate for a year, you may have to repay some of that um, money. So look at your agreement. They're pretty transparent in my experience in terms of telling you, yes, we'll give you, you know, CEs, we'll reimburse you for training, we'll send you that end plan course. But if you do leave within six months or a year, you're going to have to repay that money or, or 50% of it, whatever the arrangement is. Yeah, so it's just as much of, of uh, an investment as it is an incentive. So. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's, an, it's an incentive. You know, there's a return on it for the DSO. And by the way, independent practices can provide the same incentive. I just find the propensity of the single practitioner in one location that takes home $300,000, $400,000 a year to spend on an associate isn't the same as a DSO that needs you to work there for the next five to seven years, right? 
So it seems that as a graduate, knowing your strengths and your limitations, as well as what you want from your career is, is imperative. Um, but at the same time, DSOs are very versatile. So what kinds of questions should do grads be asking or what should they be looking for um, when looking to work with a DSO that would increase their potential for productive partnership? So one of the first questions, that's a great question. One of the first questions you should ask is, is the practice you're looking to recruit an associate for? Um, is there a principal dentist right there? Meaning, are you going to be the only dentist practicing in the location or are there other dentists? Ideally, you have a more senior, more experienced dentist that works in that office, right? Uh, it could be on a part-time basis or maybe in a, in a full-time basis, depending on how large the office is. And the reason I say that is because going back to Christian's point, you know, it can be lonely, right? If you work by yourself as the only dentist in one location. Um, so if you don't have the luxury of practicing with another experienced dentist in the same location, whether it's DSO affiliated or not, um, the other way to get that exposure is to say, you know, is there another practice within that geographic area that I could go to like one day a week, right? To shadow, or is there a clinician, like a clinical director at the DSO that's willing to come in and actually help me, right? Mentor me in my own clinic, the one I'm going to be working at. So really understand how that mentorship is going to work and what the mentorship opportunities are. And then if you have the ability to go on formal training, so classroom-based or lab-based, you know, understand who's the instructor, figure out what the intervals are, like as far as, you know, when these courses are happening, right? Um, and then the other um, question to ask is, you know, with regards to, for example, the products I use, um, does your practice have a formulary? Meaning, are, is the dental assistant or the treatment coordinator, are they ordering, let's say, one particular, you know, brand of that product? Or do I have the full flexibility to order whatever products I want based on what I think I need, right? So, some of the practices are way more standardized than others. You just want to get a sense of how standardized it is and how much flexibility there is as far as you using the products that you want to use. Uh, you may want to, for example, use Strauman implants, but they you know, buy their implants from Hyacin, right, or another manufacturer. So understand their product mix. And then in addition to that, you want to understand what your income potential is. So I would be asking questions with regards to, you know, the number of hygienists, obviously the number of dental assistants, um, you know, the average patient uh, roster, what does that look like? How many active patients? What's the reappointment rate for hygiene? You know, how long has this practice been running, right? Um, how many associates have worked in the clinic? That's a big one, meaning you don't wanna walk into a practice where in the last two years, they've had like six associates. Um, you may find that the patient goodwill has been eroded. So, and then, and then, you know, go into the clinic and actually uh, meet the team because that's very critical, right? If you can't, you can have a great producing clinic, but if you can't get along with the team members and there's no uh, bond there, it's going to be very difficult. So get to know the team and then who's the regional manager. So if you're dealing with a dental support organization, generally they're assigning a regional manager to you. And that person, usually the office managers report to that individual, right? I prefer the regional managers that have uh, had experience in dentistry prior to joining a DSO. 
Um, that's not always possible, right? But you want to meet this individual because they're going to be a lot of times your point of contact uh, if issues cannot be resolved with the office manager or the team lead. So you want to get to know who this person is and understand their background. The ones I've worked with as regional managers, they were uh, previously dental assistants or office managers. So they started out in a clinic uh, early on in their career and they understand what it takes to make an associate dentist successful. And then you also want to be very uh, open to, you know, their feedback with regards to your resume, because these DSOs generally are interviewing hundreds of associates and when many more associates, I would say than the average practice owner who's independent. So they can really guide you on what can make you stand out and what you may need to obtain as far as additional education or training in order to be successful. So Sina, uh, I just wanted to kind of touch on this, right? It, it seems like DSOs are heavily invested into, you know, developing good clinicians. And, you know, from my perspective, it seems like it's a kind of a good deal. You're, you're taught the basics of dentistry, you're shown the way, shown the ropes, right? And the organization invests in you and you get to grow. Why is it then that, that people, I mean, there's still clinicians that want to get away, want to practice on their own. Why? Like, is there, is there cons to DSO that you can kind of touch on? Yeah. So the cons are that a DSO by nature, right? Because it's a multi-location uh, enterprise, they do not run well when things are not standardized. As dentists, you're taught to be very independent and you tend to be, you know, perfectionist to some degree, right? So the idea of like listening to somebody else with regards to, you know, what products you should be using, right? Or the idea of, you know, somebody else dictating your schedule, right? Um, doesn't always jive well with, with the personality of a, of a dentist. And so the reason why dentists do gravitate away from DSOs, I would say, is to have a greater sense of personal autonomy, um, but also realize that, you know, when you decide to go out on your own, you're going to have to, given the benefit you get, which is greater autonomy, you're going to have to also be managing greater responsibility. So it's a balance, right? You just have to decide, you know, which do I want more? Do I want more responsibility with greater autonomy, less responsibility with less autonomy? And then from a clinical standpoint, um, if you're the type of associate dentist that wants to coast and you don't like to have any sort of pressure with regards to like managing, you know, a certain production goal, right? Um, you know, even ownership, private ownership may be not right for you because I can tell you that if you don't know what you produce per hour and you just jump into ownership right away, um, you may be surprised to find out that what your production is doesn't sustain your overhead costs, number one. Number two, you may realize that you have all these bills to pay, right? And that is going to create greater pressure for you to produce, which is going to maybe put greater pressure on patients. Um, the same thing can happen in a DSO affiliate practice, right? Um, so you have to understand the culture of the practice you're walking into. And then if you decide you're not going to work for somebody else and you want to be your own entrepreneur, um, that's great. Just, you know, get some experience and exposure to what that's really like uh, before you jump into it yourself. Because I've spoken with a lot of 
you know, independent practice owners, they're not considering a DSO because they feel like they're spending 40% of their time on paperwork. And when you're a practice owner, by the way, you actually don't get to choose what you work on, meaning you're the chief everything officer, right? The CEO of a practice is the chief everything officer. If a dental assistant doesn't show up, you have to hire a temp, your problem. If the, you know, pipe bursts in your dental office and you have to call the property manager and your office manager is on the phone with the patient, it's your problem to solve. So there's a lot of other things that can occur in a practice on a daily basis that you can just delegate to somebody else, right? And some of the dentists, they're okay with that. And I say to them, great, like practice ownership is right for you. For others, they've tried it, they've been burnt out. What surprises me now is the number of mid-career dentists that want to get out of ownership, meaning they want to now affiliate with a DSO because they've tried it and it didn't seem as you know glorious as they expected. Um, going back to associateship and a DSO, is there, is there, have you noticed that there's different, uh, the associateship agreement differs between, uh, signing one with a DSO and a private practice and, and in this agreement, would it make it difficult to transition out of being an associate associate and into, uh, um, practice ownership? Great question. So I've seen that. The majority of dental support organization affiliate practices, they have a contract um, they want you to sign. And to this day, there's a lot of independent practice owners that hire associates without a contract, right? Now, you may think, by the way, having no contract is better, but that's not necessarily the case because if you decided, for example, to open a practice five kilometers away, right? You know, the principal dentist in location one, the one you associated for, may still come after you, right? Now it'll be harder for them to, you know, seek damages. Um, I generally like agreements spelled out because I find that if you don't have an agreement, there's a lot of unknown, there's a lot of risk with the unknown, it's going to be hard to decide how to hedge your risk, right? So with independent practices, you know, generally speaking, the contract, if there is one, doesn't differ substantially from a DSO practice, um, still has a non-compete provision. You know, there's a, usually a radius clause, right, that dictates, you know, how far away you can compete. And the non-compete provisions themselves, there's arguments as to whether or not they're enforceable because, you know, if you're a dentist and you're an independent contractor and you work for that clinic four days a week, right, you know, is there a restraint of trade if you decide to open a practice, you know, six kilometers away, if the owner prevented you from doing that, are they restraining trade? And hence is the contract non-enforceable. Uh, I generally advise owners to just make sure that they have a strong non-solicitation agreement, right? Which means, you know, your associate cannot solicit your patients. And frankly, I think you wouldn't be so smart anyways as an associate dentist to go open up across the street from another clinic, right? Um, yes, patients may follow you, but do you really want to compete head to head with a more experienced clinician? I guess it depends, right? Whether you think you can do a better job uh, of competing or not. But at the end of the day, the contracts um, should be reviewed by lawyers. You know, they do con contain standard provisions. And I, I found that most DSOs are very transparent. They'll review the contract with you over the phone and kind of walk you through it, right? Because they don't also want, frankly, an associate to be locked in, coming to a clinic who's not happy to be there. I don't think anybody, regardless of whether you're a DSO or not, 
wants to deal with an unproductive associate that feels like they're in a prison, right? They're only coming in because they have to, they're bound by it contractually. Uh, I personally, when I manage associates, I actually uh, broke associate agreements um, that I felt like the associate um, didn't want what they thought they wanted. Like it wasn't, you know, what they expected. And I said to them, listen, you can go six kilometers away and open your own clinic. And although your non-compete provision is 10 kilometers, right? I'm okay with that because I've experienced working with you. And I feel that you have a different vision than what we do and we're better off parting ways. Right. And, and then those same associates, you know, oddly enough, when they find the location, they call me to check in with me to say, Hey, is it okay if I go into this location? Um, and I found just that amount of respect for them, uh, ends up resulting in them not actually soliciting or doing anything that's going to harm their business. Right. And, you know, it's great to see another dentist be successful. Right. And, and, and used to work for you. And so, and then some of them actually end up referring patients like on harder cases that they couldn't work on, which is always interesting too. These have been some incredibly insightful suggestions. So thank you so much. Um, for our last question, I wanted to ask if you had one piece of advice or something that you'd leave um, for people in dental school now or people that have just recently graduated. So my personal advice is, you know, because you're going to be graduating for most of you with debt, um, I think there's a tendency for uh, you when you get your license, right, to basically enhance your lifestyle to match the education that you've obtained. Sometimes that enhancement uh, goes a little too far. And my recommendation is that you really focus on the long-term and you really bring in some of the expenses they would otherwise normally have because you've associated being a dentist with having the nice luxury cars and the nice house and everything else. If you can do that, if you can make that sacrifice short-term, you will realize that when you have been practicing for you know five to 10 years, you're in a much better financial position and you can then buy all the toys that you want, right? But if you can rein it in for the first couple of years and just focus on reducing your debt and maximizing your, your income and your savings, you know, the number one indicator, what's interesting is the number one indicator of what makes somebody wealthy based on all the studies that have been done is actually not the income that they produce, it's their savings rate. So meaning there's been millionaires that make $70,000 a year. They achieve millionaire status by 40 because of a high savings rate. So think about how that is going to apply to your career as a dentist and think about the fact that at the end of the day, even owning multiple clinics doesn't necessarily mean you're any wealthier from a net worth standpoint, right? So I would rather own, for example, one clinic that does 8 million in production rather than owning four that do 2 million in production, way easier to manage, right? Chances are I'm getting a better deal on real estate. And when I decide to sell it, you know, there's a DSO out there that's looking to partner with me, right? Because nobody's going to buy, an associate's not going to buy an $8 million clinic. But that clinic is generally going to net a nice valuation, partly because it doesn't require as many staff to manage it, right? Because uh, it's not spread over for locations. So really challenge the, the concepts 
you often hear about and really think to yourself, like, does this make sense, right? And if you can understand um, what's going on behind these businesses and really look at like the profit and loss of these businesses to understand whether they're attractive or not, you'll soon realize that there's a lot of glitz and glamour, but behind the scenes, you know, these assets may not be as attractive as you think. So control your spending, uh, look beyond the facade of uh, multi-location ownership and really dig deep uh, when you look at somebody who owns multiple practices to find out, you know, how are they really doing, right? Um, and, and if you can do those things, I think you'll be way ahead uh, in your career. And I also think that, you know, we all owe it to the next generation of dentists coming up to, to be successful because at some point when we were ready to retire and we want to sell our practices, you know, it'd be a shame if there was no buyer on the other end. Zena, thank you so much, man. I, this conversation is super insightful. I, I love having discussions like this. So how can how can people find you if they want to reach out to you? Sure. So you can uh, reach out to me via email. My email address is sina at swingo.com. That's S-O-W-I-N-G-O.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Better Dentistry, as well as on LinkedIn at Better Dentistry. Perfect. Thanks so much. Well, this has been the business of drilling. Please check out Debbie Academy if you haven't already. Uh, We have a website, debbieacademy.ca.com. We can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. On Instagram, it's uh, Debbie Learn, D-E-B-I dot L-E-A-R-N. And on Facebook, just search up Debbie Academy and you should find our group. Anyways, thanks for listening. This has been the business of drilling and we'll hopefully see you in the next episode. 